0: Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Mike Vanderjatt. The pride of Oakville, Ontario, Mike loves to kick footballs through the uprights. He did it at West Virginia University, kicking for the NCAA Division I Mountaineers. He did it in the Arena Football League, kicking for, no, I am not making this up, the Minnesota Fighting Pike. He did it for your Toronto Argonauts winning two Great Cup championships on those amazing Doug Flutie pinball Clemens teams of 96 and 97. And of course, he also did it for nine seasons in the National Football League, retiring as the most accurate field goal kicker in NFL history. He's got tons of stories along the way, including an infamous brouhaha with his Colts quarterback Peyton Manning and a field goal successfully kicked on the streets of Manhattan for the Late Night with David Letterman show. Welcome, Mike, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you, and how are you? <laughs> Did the intro.
1: I am on... I have 100 feet of waterfront on Lake Ontario, but on the New York side. From uh, probably Belleville-ish, so I'm just,
0: just down the lake from, from Toronto. So we, we have technically lost you to our southern neighboring country, but you're still close to home.
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was in Canada. I was in Burlington from the 23rd to the 2nd, so I literally... Just got home yesterday. So I uh, I spent the entire holidays in uh, Southern Ontario,
0: which I love. Excellent. Well, you read my mind. I wanted to ask what connections you kept to the GTA and, and the last time you were actually in the town of Oakville.
1: Well, at, at New Year's Eve, I, I spent it uh, in Burlington. So I was, you know, close to Southern Ontario, always at least in Oakville at some point. I had a quick go back and forth with Donovan Bailey. You know, I said I was in Oakville. And I called it My Town, and he uh, he trumped by saying, oh, that's funny. Why don't we
0: meet at my park or on my street? <laughs> okay, you, you got me. <laughs> he definitely got you there. Now, Donovan has been on this podcast, and you, you ruined my part, Mike. I was going to say you're the second most famous athlete from Oakville, but yeah. you left me with something more intriguing. It sounds like you have a relationship with him.
1: Oh, absolutely. Uh, Donovan and I talk often. Our, our egos are not small, so we go back and forth with who had the better career. But you know, to be honest with you, the both of us being from oakville and and what we've accomplished, we we often have a lot of pride in the fact that, you know, as you mentioned, I retired as the best kicker in the NFL, and he was the world's fastest man. and that's 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 pretty cool for a couple of guys who used to play pickup
0: basketball in uh, Oakville when we were teenagers. Well, we're going to go all the way back and get the Mike Vanderjagt story. As noted, born and raised in Oakville, how does a graduate of White Oak Secondary School end up playing D1 college football at West Virginia University? Well, it's a it's a it's quite a crazy story in itself. I went to the Lex
1: Bird football camp after my fourth year in high school. There was a Michigan State recruiter standing at the front of the of the of the of the, of the audience and saying, "Hey, listen, if anybody can punt come and see me after this meeting so I was like okay well I can punt so I went and kicked for him he thought I was everything he needed I ended up being an MVP of the camp as the quarterback and literally got a scholarship offer the next day to Michigan State I was planning on going back for my fifth year in high school back then so you know it came as a bit of a surprise all my friends and were all still in high school and there I was off to Michigan State so I spent the first two years at Michigan State on scholarship as a quarterback and a punter I was uh, I was in over my head. I just happened to be a good athlete. But when you get to Michigan State or you get to one of those big schools, you better have your stuff together. And, uh, you know, I will admittedly say that I didn't lift weights in high school and everybody in the States lift weights and got ready. And I just, I was behind from the get-go and I just wasn't going to be successful at Michigan State. So I went to a, I left there and went to a junior college in California where I happened to be the starting punter, quarterback, and kicker. And uh, Long Beach State offered me a scholarship. Bowling Green offered me a scholarship. And then West Virginia came in late. They brought me into their program to, to show me around. And uh, Morgantown is fantastic. So I uh, I chose Morgantown, and, and off I went to uh, West Virginia, where I graduated from there and I had an unbelievable experience. And I,
0: I just started going back there to games in the last couple of years, and I, I love Morgantown. Well, let's talk about that. You did play in Morgantown for two seasons, 91 and 92. What was the U.S. college experience like? And and maybe talk about the environment around college football at West Virginia in particular. Well, our first, my first game at West Virginia was
1: on Saturday night, 7.30 ESPN, places jam-packed, probably, I think, 76,000 people. I went out there for my first punt. It was a pooch punt, so we were on the maybe pits. 40-yard line going in, so you want to hit it high and you don't want to hit it too far. It goes in the end zone, so I hit it too high, Andrew, and uh, it went nine yards and uh, the returner was just hauling tail towards me. My whole team was at the goal line making sure the ball doesn't go in the end zone and I'm standing there in disbelief and he's literally nine yards in front of me fair catching the ball. Had he not fair caught it, he could have ran. He could have just ran and ran right by me for a touchdown, so I'm, I'm walking off the field in disbelief and my head coach is screaming at me, yelling at me to run off the field. And I, then I look up and you know, what's crazy, Andrew is all my friends and family were at the game and they've got this big Canadian flag they're waving. And I look up and the flag's waving and I just hit a nine yard punt. So it was it wasn't the greatest beginning to my Mountaineer career. Well, welcome to the big time. Yeah. You know, I had a good junior year. I punted for them, and then uh, last game of the year, I got beat out. They brought in Todd Sauerbrunn, who ended up being, I think, a sixth second-round pick of the Bears. So he took my punting job, so I was looking around going, okay, well, now what? So then I just decided I was going to try and take the field goal job, which I did, so then I just
0: kicked field goals my senior year. Now, after being an eighth-round pick in the 1992 CFL draft, your first pro season was in 1993 with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders but you ran afoul of legendary CFL coach, the late great Don Matthews. Your your whole Regina experience was pretty crazy. If you don't mind sharing it, <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Um, you know i, I went to mini I went to
1: training camp. This young, tall, talented kicker and putter, and Dave Ridgway had been there. Gosh, I don't even know twenty years, maybe. So he wasn't very receptive to me being there. <laughs> Brett Maddich was the punter. They had both been multiple CFL All Stars, so I was kind of like, you know, what am I doing here? But I ended up I ended up beating out the punter for the job. First game of the year was in BC. My first punt was blocked. Uh, I think the second punt snap went over my head. The next game was at home. I had a pretty good game, and then uh, my sister was getting married in Burlington, so you know, Coach Matthews allowed me to go to the wedding. It was not going to miss a game. I was just going to miss a couple of practices, so that was fine. So I went to to Burlington for my sister's wedding, got back to Regina in time for practice, and as a rookie, just decided not to go. I had a female in town with me from West Virginia, just decided not to go to practice, and apparently that didn't go over very well. The next day, Coach Matthews brought me to his office and cut me for rookie mistakes, so years into my CFL career, I was uh, headed back to West Virginia to finish my degree and work for Koenig Sporting Goods for $4.25 an
0: hour selling shoot in Huntington, West Virginia. Yikes. Well, of course, at that point, you then did struggle to land on your feet. And after unsuccessful tryouts with the Hamilton Tiger Cats and Toronto Argonauts, you were actually out of football. But it was a connection made in Saskatchewan that eventually saved you. Yeah, so
1: 94, I got cut by the Argos. Bob Obilovich was the head coach and GM. 95, I got cut by the Argos again. Uh, The next day, I was signed by Hamilton. Hamilton, Coach Gregory, I think, was the head coach at the time. Paul Osbaldison was struggling a little bit. Uh, They had a game in Ottawa the next day. Coach said, listen, you're not going to Ottawa with us, but if Paul struggles at all, We're going to make a change. All goes five for five, kicks the game-winning field goal, and uh, I was excused of my job services at Hamilton the next day. So you're right. And then uh, 96 came along after I had been cut, I guess, four times in the CFL already. Ray Yock, who was the offensive coordinator in Saskatchewan when I was there for the few weeks in 93, got the head coaching job for the inaugural season of the Minnesota Fighting Pike, which apparently had a walleye on its helmet. I, uh, he said, listen, you don't have to try out. I'm just going to make you my kicker. So come up and play for the Minnesota fighting, fighting, Pike." Fight. I was like, cool. Sounds good. Went to play for them, played two games with them. And then, uh, got cut because I kick ke- I kept kicking off into the stands on the side of the arena, not through the net or over the net at the end. So that wasn't good. Cause the other team gets the ball at midfield <laughs> instead of at the five yard line, you can kick it into the net. So I wasn't good, Uh, so I was cut by Minnesota, and then I think a couple days later, this was June, I was then signed again with the Argos, and coincidentally, the guy that cut me in Saskatchewan is now the head coach in Toronto, but Gil Scott was both of our agents, so they they put the deal together, and I was brought into Toronto, and uh, they had me go against a guy named Rich Fall, who happened to be American, so no pun intended, I had a leg up on him going into because of uh, the fact that I was Canadian.
0: I love the uh, kicker punter humor, getting a leg up. You can use that anytime you want. Yeah. As you note, know, Mike, the uh, crazy situation, low and bald, you're back with the Argos, and Don Matthews is again your head coach. But this time, the relationship between you and Coach Matthews proved incredibly fruitful as you helped lead the Argos to back to back Great Cup victories 96 and 97. You were kicking to perfection as you went 14 for 14 through those two playoff runs. And in fact, Mike, you did win the most valuable Canadian award in the 1996 Grey Cup. Any good stories from either of those two Grey Cup championships?
1: Oh, yeah, I got lots of stories, Andrew. So I'll start with the fact that preseason 96, when Rich and I were competing against each other, we were alternating kicks and uh, the Hamilton game in 96 and preseason went into overtime. It was not going to be my turn next. It was Rich's turn, so I thought my game was done. I had my jersey untucked, and I was just kind of hanging out, chatting with the boys. Coach Matthews comes over to me as we're driving down the field for the game-winning field goal. He says, hey, by the way, this next kick is yours. I was like, oh, okay, wow, all right. So uh, we get into field goal range. Doug Flutie is in his first year in Toronto. He's obviously a CFL legend. I am an ex- extremely nervous Canadian who's been cut all over the country. And I'm going out there for a 38-yard field goal to, you know, beat the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And, yes, it's preseason in Canada, and, yes, it's the CFL. But, you know, when you're trying to get a job in this business, it was extremely nerve-wracking walking out onto that field, not only for the kick, but, you know, it's your job. And, you know, the greatest CFL player in in history – Just drove the ball down the field, and he's looking up at you going, hey, make this. It was a little bit of a chip shot, so I'm not going to take a whole lot of credit. Doug got me in a position where it was a little easier, so can't complain. So it was a big kick. I made it. Um, They cut Rich the next day, and off I went into the 96 season, which to this day, the 96 and 97 teams that I played for in Toronto were some of the best times I'd ever had playing football. Um, Don Matthews was an awesome coach. You know, crazy enough when I played again in in 2008 he came in and coached us again at the second half of the season but back to 96 it was uh, it was a great run you know you mentioned that uh, I was the Canadian MVP maybe one of the greatest games I've ever played and uh the the funny thing about that is two things I, I took the great Cup to a to a bar in Oakville I was letting everybody drink out of it I was having a good old time. Uh, end of the night comes, and I can't find it. So when I say I've won two Grey Cups and lost one, but I've only been in two, you're wondering how in heck, how do, how have you won two and lost one, but you've only played in two? But anyway, I went home with a girl to Mike O'Shea's house, and uh, the next day the police called and said, hey, by the way, I think we have something of yours. And uh, a couple of college kids at Sheridan College had taken it to a friend's house and she woke up in the morning and her grade, the gray cup was in her kitchen. So quite something. But, uh, you know, and then 90, 97, I went four for four in the gray cup and Paul Mazzotti was the MVP. And 96, Doug won a truck and I won two tickets anywhere. Canadian airlines flies 97. Doug wins a truck again. Paul Mazzotti wins two tickets anywhere. Canadian airlines flies and Doug gives Paul his truck. So I'm like, Hey, Doug, you know, I went nine for nine in two Great Cups. You know, Where, where's my truck? But uh, obviously it, it worked out. I, I had eight or nine workouts in the NFL
0: after those two seasons, including obviously Indianapolis. Well, obviously as understating it, you were a CFL All-Star, and after that 97 season, you departed for the NFL as a free agent who, as you know, you're on top of the kicking world. Eight different teams invited you to tryouts. Multiple teams made you significant financial offers. Mike, how'd you end up signing with the Indianapolis Colts? Well, the signing
1: bonus was more than half of a CFL season. So financially, it just made sense for me to go there, not only from a number standpoint, but they were offering me, again, to compete as a punter and a kicker. Uh, the Packers offered me a job to be their punter. Uh, Indianapolis said you can come in and compete for both. Coincidentally... Chris Gardaki had just been to the Pro Bowl the year before, and Kerry Blanchard had just been to the Pro Bowl the year before. So I'm going into Indianapolis to compete against the kicker and a punter who are both Pro Bowlers. That wasn't the easiest job either. They're obviously friends. And again, I'm going in there as the third guy. So it was, uh, it was an odd situation. It was difficult at the time. Uh, Jim Mora was in his first year in Indianapolis, and ironically enough, Kerry Blanchard was cut by Jim Mora when they were with New New Orleans together, so I feel like I had a bit of a, again, a leg up because I hadn't been cut by Jim Mora (laughs) a couple of years ago in in New Orleans, so and uh, Bill Polian was in his first year as as the new guy and generally speaking Andrew, in in sports if there's a new GM, he wants to put his mark on the team and be able to bring in his guys, so Again, I think that was a bit of an advantage for me. I went 4 for 4 in preseason. You know, when you're sitting in your hotel room waiting for that phone call to either say, hey, we're going in another direction, or, you know, you're our kicker. So, uh, as I sat in a hotel room in Indianapolis, the the phone rang, and I think it was Jim Mora that called and said, hey, listen, we're we're going with you to start the season. And what you take away from that, Andrew, is we're going with you to start the season. Doesn't mean you're our kicker for the next sixteen games. So, I've always said that I treated every kick as if it was my last in the NFL. You miss this one, they could they could go make a change at any at any minute. So, I literally made sure that every kick is uh, was extremely important to me, and um, I, I, obviously, I wanted to make as many as possible.
0: Well, it's definitely a business. It's quite clear from your stories. Now, Mike, you went on to play eight super successful seasons in Indianapolis, but I would be remiss if I did not ask you about your infamous dust-up with Peyton Manning. Just to set this up, following the 2002 postseason, you made some mildly critical comments about your quarterback, Peyton Manning, and your coach, Tony Dungy, during a Canadian TV interview, and this somehow got back to Peyton Manning, who subsequently referred to you as, quote, that idiot kicker. There was an article, a story, Mike Vanderjack and your team made some comments questioning maybe your passion and your and the personality of you and
1: Tony Dungy as to being winners. Yeah, that's hard to believe, Lamb, Here we are, I'm out of my third Pro Bowl. We're talking about our idiot kicker who got liquored up and ran his mouth off. So. Hey, what does the sports world come to? We're talking about idiot kickers. He has ruined kickers for life because our idiot ran his mouth. So when I get home, I'll deal with it. Tony and I talk about it. It's kind of funny, really, when you think about it. But the sad thing is, Lynn, he's a good kicker. He's right. a good kicker, but he's an idiot.
0: More than 20 years later, people still want to ask you about it, and I apologize for annoying you. But what do you remember about that time, and how did you patch things up with Peyton Manning? Uh, I
1: vaguely recall what you're talking about, Andrew. I want to admit it to see if it comes back to me. Obviously, I'm kidding. It was, uh, you know, I don't know where to start. I, I, I tell Peyton, listen, Peyton and I are friends for starters. Let's put that on the record. We have the same birthday. He wished me happy birthday last year. I was on a cruise and I looked down on my phone and Peyton Manning saying, happy birthday, buddy. So the media are wonderful people who want to make something out of nothing sometimes. I was on the score. We had just lost 41 nothing to the Jets in a playoff game. It didn't go well. I was probably pretty frustrated with how we played as a team. I'm an extremely competitive athlete. I'm not just a kicker. And, you know, I just don't think we, I didn't think we showed up to the Jets game, to be honest with you. And the question kind of caught me off guard. And, you know, I answered it, obviously, in a way I regret because you just don't talk about your teammates that way. So, Nevertheless, it happened, and you know Peyton was at the Pro Bowl at the time, so he everywhere he turned, he was asked about, you know, what about your kicker's comments, and I'm sure he got annoyed and frustrated with the whole thing, and finally blurted out what he blurted out. And uh, I got I got flown into Indianapolis to meet with Tony Dungy and my agent, and it was before social media, so I couldn't apologize on my social media feed. It was just I was stuck with letting the media have all to say and me having no say. I'll tell you that uh I'm up for a job interview that I that I can't tell you what it is, but I'll tell you that two of my three references are Tony Dudgy and Peyton Manning. So the third is pinball. That's that's a pretty good three pack. Anyway, the next time I saw Peyton we were at a in the weight room and we happened to be going to the filing cabinet for our weightlifting files and I looked at him and I was like, dude, what were you thinking? And he's like dude, what was I thinking? What were you thinking? <laughs> and I was like, yeah, good point. So uh, we buried the hatchet pretty quickly. We we played four more years together. You know, I, I recall a, a trip back from Cincinnati in a preseason game where, you know, we took buses back to Indianapolis, but a bunch of us got in a limo and uh, drove back in a limo together and had some fun, and Peyton was one of them. I was one of them. There was maybe eight of us total, and the whole way back we just we sang songs you know, don't stop believing by Journey and we just were a bunch of teenage clowns having a good old time. And like I said, Peyton and I still talk. We do mild business stuff together. So the media can paint a picture that necessarily isn't necessarily reality. So, you know, it's like two brothers fighting. You kiss and make up and you move on, and that's exactly what happened with us. But when the media made such a big deal out of it at the time, it was massive. You're right. People don't forget it, and uh, the two things people tell me all the time is, "God, you're the greatest kicker ever." How, you know what an awesome career. And then the second one is, "How's Peyton?" So it's uh, it's definitely something that has followed me. But uh, you know, I make light of it. As you can tell, it's uh, it's not a big deal. But certainly at the time it was. And the second thing is when I wrote an email to Peyton, I don't know, maybe a year and a half at this point. I I just wanted him to let you, him know. You know, that as I raise my son, you know, I teach him not to have regrets in life. And I just let Peyton know. I said, listen, one of the biggest regrets I have in life was how I answered that question. And he's like, listen, buddy, it was way in the past. I appreciate your friendship and don't worry about it. So it was uh, it was
0: cool. I think it's great. All's well that ends well. The very next season in 2003, you became the first kicker in NFL history to go an entire season, including the playoffs, without missing a field goal or a point after, earning yourself both All-Pro and Pro Bowl honors. So as you note, know, things got even better from there. Now we talk about the Dallas Cowboys triplets of Troy Aikman, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, but Mike, in those Colts years, you had a front row seat for the Peyton Manning, Edren James, Marvin Harrison show. How great were those three teammates? Well, for the 2003 season, before I go on, I'm just going to
1: say, listen, I I talked myself into a corner and I kicked myself out of it. So that's a season that, you know, the way kickers are going, it's going to get matched at some point. But 37 field goals is a lot. Obviously, all the extra points only from the 20 makes it a lot easier today than they are from the 33. So, you know, but to have the greatest season in NFL history as a kicker, the year after, you know, you get yourself into some hot water was a phenomenal season for me. And and really a way to, you know, I guess quiet the critics for anybody that said, listen, the Colts need to get rid of this guy or whatever they were saying. Obviously, they didn't need to get rid of me because I just went, I don't even know how many kicks in a season without missing. So that was important to me. Um, Edger and James and I owned a restaurant in South Florida together. Marvin used to come off the field and sit right near my net. He used to sit opposite end of the offense. Marvin and I have a great relationship. I still talk to Marvin once in a while today. Yeah, I mean, Troy Aikman is a partner in my company that I have in the States. So everybody knows the triplets, Troy, Emmett, and Michael. And and certainly the Peyton, Marvin, Edgeron era was compared to the Dallas triplets quite favorably because – you know, they're all Hall of Famers. They're all in the Hall of Fame, all three of them. So our offense was pretty potent. They always used to say, listen, you can't stop these guys. And if you do, then you got to settle for a few goal. And chances
0: are that's going in too. So between the four of us, we put up a lot of points. You guys were formidable at that time. Now, Mike, you then went on to sign with the aforementioned Dallas Cowboys to play for Bill Parcells. What was it like being a Canadian playing for America's team? It was... Uh, it wasn't the greatest experience, I
1: actually. My last year in Indianapolis, I couldn't make a kick to save my life in preseason or in pregame or in practice. It was like a guy who's got a golf swing who lost his swing. I just I could not figure out what I was doing wrong. I missed two field goals in the entire 2005 season, including the Pittsburgh one, and I have no idea how I did that. So... Had Dallas worked me out before they before they signed me, they probably wouldn't have signed me because I signed a great contract in Dallas, but didn't make it past Thanksgiving in the first year because I just wasn't very good. Bill Parcells, coincidentally, one of Bill's most famous comments are "You are what your numbers say you are," is is his one of his that every he gets quoted all the time and you know, my entire training camp in Dallas, he kept saying to me, Vanderjad, I don't even know what you can do. And I'm thinking, well, my numbers (laughs) are what I am. What my numbers say. I am coach. I'm the most accurate kicker in NFL history. And you're acting like you have no idea whether I can make a field goal or not because two things, you know, I just wasn't very good in, in preseason. So he was watching me kick and going, listen, I don't know what you can do. Maybe that's what his mentality was. And, uh, My confidence was shot at that point. So, you know, I missed four field goals in Dallas, which is not a lot. Three of them hit the right upright. So what I was doing was just a technical glitch that kept pushing the ball to the right. And I couldn't figure it out. And uh, we had just played on Thanksgiving Day against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I made my kick. I had only one field goal attempt. I made it. I made all my extra points. I kicked off, had some touchbacks. The next day I was playing golf on the Dallas Cowboys golf course and I got a no caller ID. I answered it. It was Jerry Jones. And uh so Jerry's like, Listen, we're going in another direction. And I was like, Okay. And it was actually a relief. You know, I, I went home, got in the hot tub, smoked a cigar and was thankful that I was no longer having to go kick footballs on Sunday because,
0: you know, I just had zero confidence in what I was doing at that point. Well, Mike, at that point, you did retire from the NFL as the most accurate kicker in history at 87%. You had scored over 1,000 points. But in 2008, you decided to return for one final CFL season with the Toronto Argos. Why did you choose to return to Canada to play in Toronto? Well,
1: I, in 2007, I had, I had some workouts. I think I, I tried out for the Saints twice. I tried out for the Jaguars once. I tried out for the Giants and the Chiefs. Oh, I think I went to five workouts. They were looking for new kickers. I went there again. I hadn't really fixed anything. So I was in, I was in the door just because of obviously who I was and what I accomplished. But you know, when you got three or four kickers you're competing against, they're all really good. So if you're spraying it around a little bit, they're not going to keep you no matter who you are. So things didn't work out in 2007, 2008, I had a house in, in uh, Milton and uh, hadn't sold yet. So I was like, listen, I. You know, it's, it was expensive and I could go to Toronto and live at home and make some money and sell my house at the same time. So it just became, it was just a good financial opportunity for me to just go home and, you know, lay my head in my house at night. I was living in Florida primarily, so to be able to go home to a house that's sitting there with 13,000 square feet, <laughs> ridiculously, by the way, I, uh, I figured I might as
0: well. So that was the reasoning. I want to ask you more about that house in Milton And since you brought it up. As most listeners know, Milton's about 45 minutes outside Toronto. You had a very unique backyard feature that made you, you a very interesting neighbor. Mike, do you want to talk about your interesting house feature?
1: Yeah, it was to the side. So as you drove by my house, you could you could quite easily see my lime yellow NFL uprights I had in my yard with a big net, massive net behind it. The Colts actually sent the equipment guys up to install that. So that was kind of cool in itself. They came up, stayed at my house for a couple of days, put the uprights in 13 acres. My, my house was a compound. So, you know, funny enough, I was out getting the mail in the morning one day and people were, I think were walking by or driving by and they stopped and they're like, does Paula's Baldison live here? <laughs> I was like, yeah, no, Paula's Baldison does not live here. So um, it was quite the feature. I still get asked about those uprights all the time.
0: If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Mike Vanderjet, please check out the more than 200 additional episodes available anytime. We got other gridiron greats, including Michael Pinball Clemens, Mike Morreale, Jim Barker, Adam Rita, Bill Manning, Bob Nicholson, David Cinnamon, and Mark Cohan. How they did it? Directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. All episodes available 24-7-365, wherever you get your podcasts. Or go to torontolegend.s.ca. Mike, you are also a noted Hollywood actor. In 1998, you appeared in a Walt Disney TV movie called The Garbage Picking Field Goal Kicking Philadelphia Phenomena, where you were the place-kicking stand-in for the Eagles kicker, played by noted thespian Tony Danza of Taxi and Who's the Boss fame. How did this uh, movie appearance come about?
1: Uh, it was 90. It was 97, I think. I was still playing with the Argos, the... Uh... The movie was filmed at Hamilton and at the Sky Dome at the time. You know, I, I think they probably asked some of the local football teams if there's anybody that wants to help. It was the off season, I believe. And they specifically needed me to, you know, if the ball needed to go through the uprights, you need to kick it and make it. If, you know, if the ball in the movie needed to miss, you needed to miss it for them. So I did all the kicking for the movie. I was in some of the scenes as a, as a receiver, uh, jumping jacks in practice, as the movies get made or sideline of the, of a game that they were filming to be on the sideline. It was pretty cool. You know, obviously Tony was uh, the main guy in a Disney movie. Not a whole lot of people have seen the movie, but uh, it was, it was fun to film and it was obviously an experience that uh, I quite enjoyed. Do you still get residual checks today? (laughs) I do not No, I think we got $7 an hour. I actually tried out for the, kicking job the hit the guy that tony goes against they asked me to to come in and audition so i went in and completely blundered it up i was it was awful in my and i i got a pretty good personality but I, i i was a deer in headlights at that time so clearly i did not get the job as
0: the backup kicker but uh was was able to still be part of the movie well another great experience was your david letterman appearance In January 2006, after a very tough playoff loss to the eventual Super Bowl champion Pittsburgh Steelers, you appeared on a very lighthearted segment of The Late Show with David Letterman, during which you literally kicked a 46-yard field goal outside their Manhattan studio with Letterman, who was an Indiana native and a huge Colts fan, serving as your ball holder. How'd this all come about, Mike? I think they
1: contacted the Colts. They wanted me to come on the show after the kick. Again, it was my second miss of the year. It was the year that I had no idea what I was doing. So I would have been more surprised if that kick went in than if it didn't. So it uh, it was just one of those years that a a story that maybe not to be people know is, ironically, as I was walking over to the stadium that morning from the hotel, I grabbed the door to the the RCA dome to go in, and I was listening to my iPod, and the song Blaze of Glory from... Bon Jovi came on my iPod and I actually was like, oh shit, going down in a blaze of glory as you grab the door handles to the, as you go to a playoff game is not a good sign. I actually wrote down that song on my program that sits in our lock when we get there. So it was a sign of things to come, but, uh, it was an unbelievable opportunity at the end of the day to to sit in the chair on David Letterman is, uh, obviously one of those things that you get in life that, you have to take advantage of. So it's, although it wasn't the best way that I got on the show, you know, I still sat in the chair with David Letterman. I got a couple of laughs with some of the things I said, And, you know, like you mentioned, we went out on a block from Broadway. They had brought out upright. They put the ball back to 46 yards, the same kick that was from the game. And I made it with David Letterman holding. So we joked that maybe it was the old. The reason why I missed, because if I can make it with Letterman, why couldn't I make it with my holder? But actually, I brought my holder. My holder and long snapper came with me to Letterman, so they were standing. I have a a picture in my phone with Letterman holding with um, two of my closest friends from the Colts in the background, so it was kind of
0: cool. I have to ask if you're a fan of Seinfeld. Uh, You may recall that uh, Elaine's fictional boyfriend on Seinfeld had trouble deciding whether to focus on the importing or to focus on the exporting, I want to ask Mike if you preferred place-kicking or punting. Well, yeah, uh, he was
1: uh, he was importing potato chips, I think. I'm a Seinfeld fanatic, so we can talk Seinfeld all day. But um, I coined the phrase, punt for show, kick for dough, similar to driving for show and putting for dough. You know, you're out there whacking punts around. Punting, I think, is the easiest job in pro sports. You know, you can miss hit it, it still goes 40 yards, nobody cares. Field goal kicking, obviously, is a lot more pressure than punting. You have a lot more effect on the game. And as a guy that grew up playing pretty much every sport in Southern Ontario, I played for Oakville AAA hockey. I played for Oakville soccer, you know, basketball, track, all of those things. So fondest mem- one of the fondest memories I have in a Miami Dolphins game is we were tied at 31 Three seconds left in the game. I'm walking out to kick a 53-yard field goal to win the game. And, you know, Jim Moore is our coach. Jimmy Johnson is the Dolphins' coach. Peyton Manning is our quarterback. Dan Marino is their quarterback. And here I am walking on the field to decide this game. It's one of those moments you're like, look at all this. All this came down to me. You know, you got Dan Marino and Peyton Manning competing against each other, yet here I am going to kick the game-winning field goal. So I think field goal kicking allowed me to – put my stamp on a game in whatever way possible so I prefer kicking although like I said putting is a lot less
0: stressful I can see that now you're the best person to ask for the layperson Mike what is the secret to successfully kicking a football
1: well obviously first and foremost you need technique you need to be able to do it but you got to walk out there with confidence. You know, everybody's like, oh, my God. I, I think in the last couple of years, I've had so many conversations about field goal kicking. A field goal kicker in the NFL is probably the most pressure-packed position in all of sports. I'd be hard-pressed to find something more pressure-packed than an individual position in a team sport, like goaltending for hockey, for example, or pitching in baseball. But as you walk out in the field in a field goal, to kick a field goal in an NFL game, uh... Quick story, last game of the year, the year that I didn't miss. We were driving down the field to score the game-winning field goal. The game was tied. You know, I had made 40 in a row already. My next kick was going to be 41 to break the NFL record. The kick was going to win the game. The kick was going to win us the division. The kick was going to win us a home playoff game next week, which I was told, I don't know how, that the City of Indianapolis would earn $14 million in revenue if we have a host-to-home playoff game. So as we're driving down the field, I went over to Rob Morris, our starting middle linebacker, and I was like, listen, this, you know, this next kick is to break the NFL record. It's to win the game. It's to win the division, and it's to win $14 million for our city. Do you want it? And <laughs> He's like, no, no. I was like, all right, I'll go. So, you know, you have to have confidence in what you're doing in order to be successful in that league at that position. You can't be wavering. You can't be nervous. You can't think, oh, my God, what if I miss? For me, when you're really good, you know you know the ball's going in. So people are like, oh, my God, how could you do it? Well, because I knew the ball was going in, that's how I could do it. So, you know, like I said in my last year, when the, when you start worried about the ball not going in, that's when your problems arise. But uh, if you're successful and you're confident in what you're doing, those are the biggest things you have to, you have to be able to handle is the pressure, obviously. But uh, you know, if you grew up playing soccer, you got a leg up on anybody who didn't grow up playing soccer to become a good field goal kicker. So I had such a such a high soccer background. Being able to kick field goals was just kind
0: of natural. And when you talk about having it in your genes and seeing it in your house, this is your big chance to brag, Mike. I understand your son Jay has followed somewhat in your footsteps onto the football field.
1: Yeah, he uh, he was a quarterback. He had a scholarship to a Division II school in Ohio, uh, so he got a free education. He actually was going to go play for the University of Carleton last year, coincidentally, and get his master's. So I got him the starting quarterback job, and then uh, I sent the special teams coach, Mark Nelson, who coincidentally coached with me with the Argos in 97, was a special teams coach in Carleton. So I said, hey, Mark, here's some film of my son kicking and punting, just in case, you know. Something happens and someone gets hurt or we we want to do something fun on third down, we can punt. Next day, Mark comes up, sends me a text. He goes, hey, by the way, your son is our starting punter and kicker. (laughs) So I guess what he showed them on video was good enough. to. So he was going to go there and be the starting punter, kicker, and, and quarterback. But him and I were driving to the Rochester PGA Championship this year in May in Rochester. And I said, Hey listen, have you been talking to Carlton and making sure that you're, you know, all you're ready to go here pretty soon? And he's like, Dad, I'm not going. I was like, Excuse me? He's like, Yeah, I just don't love it. I was like, Oh, okay. So that was pretty disappointing, but you know, he just he didn't love it like you know, and his football experience wasn't wasn't as great as mine, I guess. So I think he got discouraged by how he was treated through his career. And I think he just wanted to forget about it and move on. And I'm sure to some extent he probably did it to satisfy his dad. So to be the son of a, I don't want to say an NFL legend because I certainly don't consider myself that, but to be the son of a guy that was successful in, in pro sports, probably harder than people
0: realize. It is a lot of pressure. Of course, we all have to find our own path and our own way. But Mike, I understand you are still coaching young kickers. Do you still have your kicking school brand, Team Vandy 13? Yeah, it's it's almost
1: word of mouth. I don't really advertise, and I don't you know try to do a lot on social media. I don't even run my social media. I've got kicker and putter's dads that do it for me. I've got three guys in the States, actually. Right now, Grady Gross, if you watch uh, the Washington-Texas game, they kept talking about the kicker for Washington, who earned a scholarship because he won the Apple Bowl in Washington against Washington State. They gave him the scholarship in the locker room after the game. That's Grady Gross. He's from Scottsdale. I coached him through high school. Great kid. Really good kicker. Austin McNamara is the putter for Texas Tech. He's a five-time All-Big 12. He's going to compete in both bowls, senior bowls here. So he's uh, going to end up in the NFL. He's my guy. We've got a kicker for NC State, Braden Narvison, who is an All-American, who's going to play in one of those senior bowls, too, as a kicker. So those are the big three. I've got other kids scholarships. I've got a kid at Medina where I coach now in Medina, New York, uh, Cole Callard, who's gonna be a senior this year, who's the, in the you know, in the same lines as those guys. He's he's a division one kid who's really good, great kid, and, and he's gonna play on Saturdays as well. And I coach special teams for Medina High School, so I'm there every Friday night making sure that we, we kick and protect and cover and, you know, return and all that good stuff on uh on fourth down. So I absolutely enjoy being around kids and the competitive spirit is alive and well in me. And I just want to, you know, when I first went to Medina and I talked to the head coach, Eric Valley, who actually was just Buffalo Bills coach of the year on Sunday. So shout out to Eric. But uh, when I went and met with him, I walked up to the school and I was just like, Hey, I'm Mike Banerjad. You know, I'd like to help out with your program. And the principal said, yeah, well, Eric's in the, in the down in the weight room and here's how you get there. And by the time I had got to the weight room, Eric had already been told that I was on my way. So he was just like, "Is this really happening? <laughs> Am I really having an All Pro kicker walk into my weight room saying I can I want to help out with the program?" But one of the first questions I asked Eric was, "Does winning matter to you? You know, and do you do you want to win? You know, because some programs just kind of go through the motion." But little did I know that we went ten and one last year, and I think we went ten and one this year, or whatever. But great program, great program to be a part of. We played at Bills Stadium this year in their regional championship. So, you know, even then there's a little bit of an NFL connection that the fact that you're playing in a stadium that, although he's a Bills fan, he doesn't like the fact that I kicked a 45-yarder to beat Buffalo one year. So I throw that at him every once in a while. But to answer your question long-windedly, yes, I I still am part of uh, coaching.
0: Well, here's my concern, Mike. You are approaching your 54th birthday, and these young bucks, they must say, hey, old man, can you can you still do it? How do you stop yourself from uh, trying to show them what you can do and therefore pulling a ligament or a tendon?
1: Well, I don't stop from showing them. I, uh, my son and I have video of we both made a 50-yard field goal when I'm 50, or 50 years old, so I can still hit it from a long way out. And uh, the, the only thing these guys know is Matt. So the fact that I had a 99 rating on Madden, which is the highest rating you can have, is something these guys talk about all the time. Is mad, mad, 99, 99, 99. So the fact that I'm one of those guys, those limited guys that have a 99 rating on Madden, is the biggest thing that those kids and I talk about. I
0: think that is fantastic. Throw that 99 right in their face. Absolutely, yeah. Well, listen, Mike, I want to thank you for your time. It's been absolutely great getting to meet you and hear all the stories from your career. And everyone, I'm sure, will be pleased to know you're still kicking them through the uprights. Yeah. I potentially have something really cool
1: happening. I do have something cool happening. Um, I'm bringing Fathead to, uh, to Canada, so I'm going to be part of a team that has brought 190 licenses, including the NHL and NFL. We're going to do a lot of good things in this country through Fathead. And I love canada i love southern ontario i want to spend as much time as i can there
0: so looking forward to it and that's it i think it's great i I smell a second appearance coming down down the pike mike so we'll have to see no problem andrew you can hit me up anytime well it was my pleasure to have you and to the listeners on behalf of mike Vanderjat, i am andrew applebaum saying thanks for listening to this episode of the toronto legends podcast Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer.